Welcome to the State of Sound podcast, produced by the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library and Museum. A companion series to the blockbuster exhibit, The State of Sound, a world of music from Illinois. Now playing at the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library and Museum. Welcome to the State of Sound recording studio here at the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library and Museum. I don't use this word often, but we have the legendary Terry Hammer. <laughs> I don't use it often either. <laughs> inducted into the Radio Hall of Fame in 2010, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I guess so. I can't keep track. <laughs> thank you yeah. so much thank for you. coming down. Well, thank you. And, I'm uh, with the legendary Dave Hoekstra oh, here. Oh, yeah, we try. No. And no, I've, uh, I've, we're going to do a group interview. I've read here. a lot of your stuff over the years. You know, I feel like I know you. <laughs> yeah, well, well, thank you. Um, got John Langford's going to ask some questions. Well, I'm a fan of his too, and but he knows that. Have, this wouldn't happen without Lance Towser, the yeah. uh, director of exhibits and shows here at the Lincoln Museum. So, are you going to make history your middle name? I think you should do that. You know, I'm going to change it tomorrow. Yeah. Okay. So, I want to just tell the listeners who's listening to this just a little bit of your career 101, and then we mm-hmm. get into some specific questions for everybody here. Sure. Talk about how you got into radio, what you heard in Ohio. And oh, and okay. Like yeah, well, I grew up listening to WING in Dayton, Ohio, the Wing Lively guys. And uh, Gene by Golly Berry was my favorite DJ because he was this white guy that loved black music, and he turned me on to it like at an early age, like, you know, like. I was trying to con my aunts into buying me coaster singles. You know, it was that long ago. And I was like in grade school with no allowance. And uh, and my ear glued to the radio. And uh, this is before even uh, portable radios. My parents took an old console of radio from the, the radio television uh, piece of furniture we used to all have and they got somebody rewired wire it and then put a 45 rpm record player in the guts of it and at night i would climb under my bed and turn it on listen to wing at night it was all glowing and so i was just nuts about music and then the beatles came around in 1964 mm-hmm. as mr langford knows because he painted a wonderful picture of me with the beatles but he had me as old as ed sullivan in the picture you were in, that. You were in the beatles for a while i was in, yeah in hamburg yeah. yeah i didn't make that stuff in hamburg yeah no uh no but i loved the i didn't think i was going to like the beatles because i thought they were going to be like four pat boons you know doing yeah, right. r&b covers like who needs it you know and so i uh, watched it as a skeptic that first week on Ed Sullivan. And I went, oh my God, these guys are really good. I kind of like them. And the third week when John Lennon sang Twist and Shout, I lost it. Because uh, not since Elvis that I heard a white guy really sing with soul, you know. And early Elvis was spot on. Then he, th- those jumpsuits kind of ruined him. But, you know, but really amazing vocals. And you could tell they loved the music. They were paying tribute to the music. They weren't just ripping it off. So I became a Beatle nut, like, immediately. And then the next year, 65, I was in study hall with my teen magazine and my geography book, True Story. And I'm reading, and Jim Stagg, who ended up on WCFL for many years, he was in Cleveland at the time, and he went on all three American tours and would interview them in every town and and syndicated all over the country and so i saw a picture jim stagg interviews ringo Starr, and i told ringo this story a couple years ago and he flipped out he loved it i said but a light went off over my head and i thought if i got to be a disc jockey i could meet the beatles because i didn't want to pull their hair or scream and run down the street after him and all that stuff i just wanted to hang out with them they seemed really cool (laughs) and then i didn't even stop and think that there were no women on the air but i was just stubborn you know and and so it was time to go to college and i chose elmhurst college because they had a really groovy uh, campus radio station you know and uh and my dad who was a plumber very good guy and he said well i support you in your dream it's very improbable you know you might probably might might not make it but i want you to give it your best shot but have a backup plan so i said okay i'll teach speech in high school and junior high if i can't make it in radio so i majored in speech which turned out to be a good major for for what i end up doing interview skills and all kinds of stuff and just getting over my shyness of getting up and talking in front of people that kind of stuff so i graduated from elmhurst and uh and edited textbooks for a few months while I kept bugging WGLD at the Oak Park Arms Hotel, the underground radio station, my favorite station. This is 1970. 1970. Right. Yeah. And, um, and I kept bugging them for a job because I didn't want to edit textbooks the rest of my life. And they finally hired me, they said, to keep me 
from bugging them, you know. So they put me in a walk-in closet, and I answered the request line for ninety dollars a week, and uh, with my bachelor of arts degree, you know, yeah. and um, and very slowly but surely worked my way out of that walk-in closet. Because <laughs> really, like this time of year, fall, people come hang up their coats and say good morning to me because I was literally in a walk-in closet, and by the end of the two years. I was doing all kinds of making work, you know, in this the in the uh, programming department, and then they started putting me on uh, fill-ins, and I thought, oh, I could make this, you know, this this is going to happen. <laughs> and uh, my boss one day came out; he was uh, kind of a bully, and he was watching me work my rear end off because I was a hard worker and I worked really hard and made stuff up, made it a better radio station, I think. And uh, and I learned a lot about radio from that too. That was great. But he came out one night and he was watching me work like and just and he laughed. He said, "You think you're going to make it, don't you?" And I said, "Well, you know, that's what I want to do." And there are no guarantees, but I'm on my way, I think. And he goes, "You don't have what it takes. You're, you're never going to make it." And I went home, almost cried. And I thought, you know, I was 24 years old, and I thought, oh, you know, because they had a woman on GLD, which was so radical. But they right. said we can't have two women on GLD. My God, be reasonable. So I thought I, I'm just going to have to hang it up. And I tell my students this story at Columbia College, and I said he went on to be uh, the general manager of a station in Florence, Alabama. And I'm in the rock and roll effing hall of fame and so sometimes somebody will tell you crap like that and just remember your teacher told you so it was an uphill battle but finally made it and i don't want to i don't want to gloss over that i mean there's just a story in the news just last week about the milwaukee bucks hiring the first female announcer play-by-play announcer 2021 look what you were doing in the late 60s and early 70s so i don't want to i mean talk about how cha- you touched on that there, but how challenging yeah. that was for you, and also what you said about your parents, your parental support. Yeah, that meant the world to uh-huh. me, you know. And well, even at the campus station, I encountered sexism from my peers. You know, I mean, it, it was a miracle that I got to be program director, and I finally had to drop that because I got on academic probation because I was spending too much time at the station, <laughs> and I was in a singing group called the Buckets, and we were killing it, and so we were busy. <laughs> we had we had the, the Buckets. buckets. Yeah, well, it was the ass buckets, but then we decided we'd never get our name on a poster, so we dropped it to buckets. And then the ass ponies came around years later, and I thought, man, you know, oh, the buckets, that's a whole other story. Uh, we're still we're still soul sisters together. So anyway, uh, no, even in college radio, and, and I... And I had to put up with, I, they wouldn't let me do a rock show because they said, well, girls don't do rock shows. I went, what do you mean girls don't do rock? I can carry a big milk crate of records. I can handle that. And uh, and I had to start off with a mood music show. And I thought mood is like dinner music, you know, the living strings play Lennon McCartney, you know. So and I started reading poetry over and doing really campy crap, you know. And, stuff. and, and I got a following and then people were just like demanding I do a rock show. So I finally got to do a rock show. But uh, no, it was really crazy. And then when I was trying to get a job in radio, they I heard things like, well, nobody wants to listen listen to a woman on the radio and women don't have good voices and women especially don't like to listen to other women and men you know like well you remember wsdm yeah, that was right. around for and and everybody you know a couple of years later that was all female djs and i said you should apply there and i said i don't want to because then i'll be stereotyped you know because the, the the cliche at the time was you had to sound like you just had a great night of sex you know like oh you know <laughs> And it was either that or or you had to be twice as smart as any every man. You're like, rah, 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 I'm, you know, and I'm going to burn my bra right here on the studio. Yeah. You know, and I didn't, I thought, I don't feel comfortable with either one of those. And it was Yvonne Daniels who I heard when she was on CFL doing a Sid and Yvonne. And then later on, she went on to SDM. But Yvonne Daniels really inspired me because she was a true pioneer and she doesn't get enough credit for it. And uh, she sounded like herself. And I thought, that's how I want to sound. Not like Yvonne Daniels. I want to sound like myself. Now, what does that sound like? It's like playing the guitar. You know, you you start out liking B.B. King and so you play like B.B. King and then all of a sudden you realize you've got to sound like yourself. And what does that sound like? You have to find your voice. And that sounds like a cliche, but and it's a process. It's hard because you're, really you're kind of crazy. You're sitting in a room all by yourself, talking into a microphone. People, you can't hear the response 
luckily. Uh, and, and it's kind of crazy. How do you, you know, stand up comedy? At least you can see what the response is and you can respond to that. I had a guy from the score once that told me, Oh, I could be on XRT. It'd be easy. I could just say another record by the pretenders on XRT, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I said, okay, let me on the score. It's a sports radio station right. talk. And I said, give me a sidekick and two producers and a phone lighting up with calls. I could talk about sports till the sun goes down. Sure. You know, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, you try sitting in a room by yourself and have a personality yeah. that's tricky. So, uh, and then I, I left GLD finally cause I realized I wasn't going to get anywhere there. And I went to, uh, WCMF in Rochester, New York, right. actually Tom Tuber, a friend of mine from, uh, Elmhurst college. We, made a blood pact that was back before hiv so you could actually cut exchange <laughs> fluids and not worry about it um but we said whoever gets in the radio first are going to hire the other one and he was a year older than me and so he hired me so i did all nights there for two years and then one of the uh people at the station decided they wanted to have carnal knowledge of the only female dj and i said no thank you and i was very polite about it no harm done but he got me fired (laughs) and uh so i came back here with nothing and uh certainly no money (laughs) he wasn't making any money but i was on midnight to six six nights a week and that was great that was my hamburg like the Beatles played Hamburg hour. Yeah, no, it's uh, at, at CMF. Okay, and that, like the Beatles would play six hour yeah. sets. Mm-hmm. And that's where I learned my craft. Because when you're on the air that long, if you don't get it by then, you're <laughs> going to plumbing. Yeah, I would yeah. have joined my dad's plumbing company. But um, no, but uh, then I came back without a job and, and destitute. And XRT was just starting up. And they were three guys who I'd known at GLD. I'd met them at GLD. Uh, John Platt, Seth Mason, and Bob Schulman. And they knew that I'd work really, really hard for very little money. So they said, stick around. We were trying to make a position for you. So they hired me part-time and then finally full-time. But I was on the all-night show for like seven years. And then That's finally- That's heard you, I think. Yeah, so, and that was a lot of fun, though, because anything goes. Yeah, and yeah. I was at a, a, a movie showing at, uh, oh, it was at the Gene Siskel Film Center, and one of my former students uh, produced a documentary that won a lot of awards on Betty Davis, the mm-hmm. funk artist, mm-hmm. Miles Davis's ex, and, and I went to watch it. It was sold out, and I was one of three white people in the whole place, and during the Q&A, because she was there as a producer to do a Q&A, and somebody stood up and said, I just want to say that I, I see that Terry Hemmert from XRT's here said she was playing funk at three o'clock in the morning when nobody, even black radio wasn't, and she was playing Betty Davis and Funkadelic Parliament, all that stuff. And, 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 you know, went really deep with some of that. And that, and was, that was so your sweet. Choice. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Cause we could play anything we sure, wanted. Yeah. Well, that was and, FM radio, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. And you and, could actually, uh, you yeah. could actually play what you wanted. Yeah, we could, especially in Rochester. I get, and bands would stop by like, Procol Harum and Genesis and all kinds of bands would stop by after their gigs and we'd just sit around and talk. We did all kinds of weird stuff on the air. People at other radio stations, we would play with. One night, there, there were four of us that did all night radio in Rochester. We planned the next night at a certain time. We all four put on side three cut to a bitch's brew by miles davis and that, that was really out there in early 70s it still yeah. sounds progressive yeah, right. but we could picture all these people going what the heck and then go down the dow what <laughs> go down the, and then have a twilight zone experience so we did all kinds of stuff like that in rochester it was a lot of fun but uh but with xrt finally somebody left and there was an opening and I got to be on the radio when the sun was up and when people were listening, but all night radio was fun though. Cause I could get away with murder. Yeah. Right. I had a blast. I did that weird show on XRT for a while. Oh, you did. It was great. You I and that. Nick Tremulous. That's all I, that's all I wanted to do was be on really late at night and not know if anyone was actually out oh. listening, but just be able to play whatever we wanted to play. Well, you, did you and know that fantastic. musicians are frustrated DJs? No, I am. Cause that's you ask a, a lot. Well, Elton John has come out of the closet I for would, that, you know, I would much rather DJ. Really? Because you, yeah, you're playing all this fantastic. Well, that was you 1970. Got the whole thing, you know. <laughs> no, what, what happened to radio? A lot happened to radio. That's another show. Was but it, Was it just uh, money? Uh, it's money. And um, when, uh, unfortunately, it was our President Clinton signed that 
paper that said that you could own as many radio stations as you wanted, right. that you lost the independent uh, owners and that you get conglomerations of corporate things and everybody sounds the same. And yeah, there's that. And, uh, and it's hard with radio now cause we don't compete with other radio stations as much as competing with other technologies. So it's really, it's not dying. I think radio is unique and will always have a place, but it's not dominant like it used to cause there are other choices and that's rough. So Anyway, we can talk about, I mean, I know this is important to you, and this is kind of, again, going back to what we tried to do with the exhibit um, about community and sense of community, and especially now in these kind of divided and lonely times, radio can be a, mm. a source of community, especially local radio and stuff. And there's an I intimacy. Reading, I remember reading a story with you about, well, okay, I met Paul McCartney, but having the direct contact with the listeners was just as important. So mm-hmm, can you just mm-hmm, talk about mm-hmm. radio, uh, all you guys, yeah. Chance was in radio. Right, right. He's very shy about it. But. I mean, radio just is part, local radio is part of community. Well, you know, to me, one of the things that I love about radio and what I think why it'll always be around is there's an intimacy in radio and not satellite radio, but like local radio and intimacy you can't get anywhere else. And when I was working all nights in Rochester, I was getting so many calls in the middle of the night with people this close to committing suicide. Uh, somebody took the brown acid, you know, and, you know, drug overdoses and all kinds of stuff and crises calls. And I finally went to the youth center in Rochester and I said, I'll make you a deal. If you put me through your training course, I'll volunteer one night a week on my way into work. And, and I learned a lot from that and, and had some harrowing experiences with people calling up who had already slit their wrists and they wanted to hear it's a beautiful day, white bird and die to that song. And uh, and that's an amazing story in itself because ordinary, if I hadn't gone through the training, I would have said, "Oh, don't die! You have so much to live for." And she would have gone, "Yeah, f you," <laughs> you know. And instead, I yelled at her. I said, "You're a coward! You know, you're you're a loser." <laughs> yeah, wow. oh, I haven't told it <laughs> other than a class, but but uh, and it went on all night. She would call up and then hang up, and like I would do a novena to the patron saint of suicide prevention. Please help me on this, you know, and. And I, I wouldn't buy into her crap. She wanted to hear White Bird. Remember that song is very dramatic. And she that will, that was going to be the song, her exit song. And I said, if I play that song, that means I, I'm feeding into this crap. And, you know, and I was swearing like a sailor to her and just saying, you're, you know, you're a real coward. You know, she goes, you don't know how hard my life is. I said, boo-hoo. Everybody has a, you know, I never would have thought to do that. And they didn't train me to do that. They just trained you to think in a different way and then improvise because everybody's different. I'm not saying that would work with so i'm not advising people to do that every time but i just had a feeling that she was having a pity party and this song would add to the drama so finally she said well my mother's an alcoholic i said wow how unique i bet nobody else out there has an alcoholic parent get help you know and and finally at the end this went on for hours and i'm doing a show meanwhile you know and finally she called and she said um i slipped my wrists I'm sorry, I just have to do it. And she said, will you play the song? And I said, I'll make you a deal. I'll play the song if it's a song that you hear as you get taken out by a stretcher and get to the hospital. It'll be the song that'll be the beginning of your life, not the end of your life. And she said, well, how will I know you'll play the song? I said, how will I know you'll call an ambulance? And if you don't, I'll never forgive you. Well, I would never know. But it was irrational. But it, it was making sense to her. And she finally, and, and um, I said, call, you know. And her mother was asleep in the next room. I said, wake her up, have her call an ambulance, and get out of here because you're, you're fading. And so I played the song. And this is no lie. Then this went on for hours. And then about 5.30, about the time I'd sign off, I get a call from some woman. She goes, is Terry there? I said, speaking. said, uh, well, my daughter wanted me to, who are you? I said, well, wait, you're calling me. Who are you? And well, my daughter just got taken to the hospital, and she handed me this slip of paper with Terry and the phone number. And she wanted me to call and say she's going to be okay. I said, are you her mother? And she goes, yes. I said, if you don't get your butt and into AA this morning and, and continue to go, we'll have this conversation another time and, and you won't get her in time. She'll, she'll be dead. And I said, 
hang up the phone and call A right now. Get going. And, and I heard back from the young woman a few weeks later and things were working out and her mom was in AA and she was in Al-Anon and, uh, it was, and it just gave me chills. Cause I thought, you know, this kid could have died if she didn't have somebody to call at four o'clock in the morning and, uh, and somebody had gone through a training program too, fortunately. So that's what I love about radio and music. And now that, I'm semi-retired and busier than ever, but I'm, I've gone to Facebook and I write every night. I, I post something about some piece of music and I'm learning too, cause I'll go deeper and find out something I didn't know. And, uh, and people are really responding. And, and these are people who've been listening for decades. Like I was at Ravinia last night. People are coming up and saying, every day I read what you posted. And, and it's just like the cherry on top of the Sunday after all these decades of listening to you on the radio. And now you're still, you know, going even further. Like I do classical music on Wednesday, you know, and, and stuff I couldn't do on the radio. And so that's an outlet for me. And, and I can be more the teacher, you know, instead of a disc jockey. And I still teach at Columbia college history of rock and soul. Yeah. Uh, first semester is 1920 to 1969. Second was 1970 to right now. And then the kids start teaching at the end of the semester. Then they have to get up and do oral reports, and I learn something. So it's great, you know, but I, I love that. And I've been there 45 years. Columbia? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was still doing the all-night shift. To, it was just a couple of years after I started XRT. 48 years at XRT. Well, That's why I'm sitting down. I want to talk about history. I mean, how do your students approach, um, maybe we should just say local history, Chicago area history? Oh, yeah. We, What's yeah. the take on it? And, you know, I was thinking about this. This wasn't on my list of questions, but I saw that Rolling Stone list of 200 top songs. Oh, yeah. And I saw Imagine dropping down. Uh-huh, sure. You wonder, like, you know, yeah. our generation, look at some of this rock and roll, like our parents looked at Glenn Miller and Benny, you know, Benny Yeah, right, I right. I mean, how do they look at history and how do you right well uh we start with louis armstrong and and i tell him i said for you to understand popular music today you need to know the history of it and and we have like this foundation you know the the blocks that rock and soul were built on and it's swing big band jazz dixieland all that kind of stuff uh we do a big thing on gospel music gospel's huge and and uh also uh country and western folk all that kind of stuff and uh then we go from there and then start tracing it from the early 50s on but you know we go from the mills brothers to the ink spots to the temptations you know and just and see how it evolved and uh you know Oh, they love it. But I also teach it in the sense it's not music trivial pursuit. I said, I want you to know some stuff, but we ha- will have a semester-long discussion of racism because if you don't understand race relations, you don't understand American music. And I mean not just black music. I mean like John was talking about Johnny Cash earlier. Johnny Cash, <laughs> you know, it's part of our DNA. It's part of our history. Oh, yeah. 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 And and also you, I tell them that the audiences were segregated, but the musicians weren't. They were listening to each other. You know, Hank Williams and the Carter family were picking up blues songs and changing them around. It was blues music for poor white people. Great photographs of uh, Bob Wills and his Texas Playboys on South South Side jazz clubs, jazz and blues clubs, and them sitting sitting in their they're not in their western suits. They look like kind of like. They look really cool, and they're well, you know very sophisticated, week, and they've yeah. gone. They've gone to listen to sure. black music. Well, know. just last week, uh, I showed them uh, San Antonio Rose and that video where they're in a TV, a radio studio, yeah. and they've got. I said, "This is big band swing and country music because it." You know, they had the vocalists come out, and just like the old big band stu- used to do, and and just the. The whole way the song is presented, it's as much jazz as it is country and Absolutely. western. Yeah. I wanted Lance to talk yeah. about uh, to plug the exhibit. I did get yes. To, in the last segment we were talking about, I got an email from a guy in Texas who came to this, and he just said he couldn't believe all the different types of music that came out in Illinois. So mm-hmm. talk about what we tried to do, especially showing the diversity. In that right. Movie. I mean, and, and anytime you do anything, you're, you know that... Uh, 
um, we, we set out to make an exhibit that was going to celebrate the music from Illinois, but very comprehensively. And that's why you see everything from Mavis Staples to a, a very scary microphone from Ministry and everything, <laughs> everything in between. Yeah. Um, we, we also realized that um, we can't talk about everybody. You can't talk about everybody. And sure. you, we have people come in and say things like that, that they, they didn't, they had no idea that so much music originated from the state. At the same time, you get people come in and say things like, you didn't make a big enough deal of Head East or something, you know, somebody that meant a lot to them, you know. Uh, and and we knew going in that, that we were going to have people that were going to be just their eyes are going to be wide open, but also some people that that have very personal connections to certain music. And if we didn't celebrate them to the level that, in their mind, that that it was a, going to be a travesty or something along those lines. And, and so we made very conscious decisions about uh, who we were going to talk about and why. So if you, uh, and we kind of took a very pragmatic approach. So if someone like John Langford comes around and this entire genre of alternative country music starts, there, there are people that are sort of at the crest of that wave. If you think about even the 90s alternative rock scene with Smashing Pumpkins, there were a lot of bands that kind of followed in behind that were from Illinois. And, mm -hmm. and so so we can't talk about everybody, so we need to talk about the ones that were sort of the pioneers or right. the ones that were trailblazers. And that's really, we have a, an amazing selection of materials from big trailblazers, uh, as you mentioned, uh, mm -hmm. Benny Goodman and, and Miles Davis and all these people. And, and for us, we were trying to also be comprehensive in the state. I'm from the Chicago area, but as soon as you move, move to the middle of the state, there's a big bias here. They think, mm -hmm. oh, well, everything about Illinois has got to be about Chicago. Yeah. But we had some amazing stories like Dan Fogelberg and, and even Miles Davis from Alton, Illinois. Yeah. And so we tried to not only be comprehensive musically, sure. but also geographically, which you know, can be challenging, too, because the population centers in the state. But when you're, when you're approaching it from teaching a class, and you're not talking about just Illinois, you're talking about right. uh, you know, from an, an entire nation. Sure. Where do you start? Where do you start, and and what sort of decisions do you make with regards to who you're going to talk about and why they're important? Well, I start with Louis Armstrong because I think he's the first rock star. I mean, he was not the first jazz musician, but he was the one that was the star. And he broke through all kinds of barriers, not just musically, but showing up in films with Bing Crosby. You know, I mean, my God, that was amazing back then. And uh, and he had that personality, that charisma that brought that music to a lot of people. Plus, I and I think with Louis Armstrong, I, I know I resented him when I was a teenager because Hello, Dolly knocked the Beatles out of the number one spot. When I thought, oh, what a hokey song, you know, but I had no idea about the Hot Five and all that stuff or that, you you know, some of his stuff was avant-garde for the time. You know, you talk to a jazz trumpet player and they'll tell you he was like inventing the whole thing as he went along. And he had this charisma. So, you know, there's just, he really was one of the ambassadors racially, not just in the United States, but around the world. But I also point out to my students, like Duke Ellington and Count Basie, they weren't baptized Duke and Count. They took those names on for royalty and they dressed impeccably. I mean, just amazing, handsome men, talented men. And that was as opposed to the the, the blackface kind of crap that was going on in the, you know, Amos and Andy and all the, minstrel you know, stuff, all yeah. the minstrel shows and all that. And so that was such a jarring thing that we lose sight of. But I said, the fact that they presented that Ella Fitzgerald, just a classy woman, you know, and so talented. And I said, that was huge. And that opened up to a white audience and they, and they had a different way of seeing black people and black people had a sense of pride that they didn't see, you know, before, you know, in the media. But on the other hand, they were playing these beautiful hotel ballrooms and stuff, live radio broadcasts mm. before DJs and stuff and before television. So that was a big entertainment. But I was telling them just the other night, because we're in this period now, and I said, you know, they play in these halls, they had all these fans, but if they wanted a sandwich or if they wanted to stay there and get a room for the night, or if they wanted to use the bathroom, good luck, right. you know? And that's just, and the kids are like, whoa, you know? Yeah. That's like Summer of Soul. We were just talking about on the way yeah. down here. That good film, film is yeah. so good, because it's not just a, a documentary about a, a great musical event, but it's history, and, and you can't separate the two. And, and I always 
tell my kids too that Dr. King owed a debt to baseball and music because he knew you had to pass legislation to move things along. But that's not enough. He was also a, a man of God, so he knew you had to work conversions of the soul. You had to convince people in the marrow of their bones to believe something and to believe that justice is right and that we need to love one another. He needed baseball and music because that's how some white kids first their first experience with racism and 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 racial awareness and all that stuff came through those like me being a fan of Roy Campanella and finding out that he played in the Negro Leagues because they wouldn't made me mad as a fifth grader. I was Injustice. furious. Yeah. I didn't know about that. You know, I always I knew he made it, but I didn't realize what he had to go through. So all that stuff with musicians and all that really brought an awareness and an empathy because if you love Roy Campanella like I did or if you love Ella Fitzgerald and you find out how they're treated that changes you that changes the way you see the world why do you like Roy Campanella Oh my God! I'm not a baseball guy here. <laughs> oh, can I digress? <laughs> okay, Roy Campanella. Well, I read that biography. I love biographies. When I was—I told you I was a history nut, but I love biographies, and I give them to those big head biographies for middle school kids. Now I give them out to kids all the time because I think that's how you understand as a child how you get from there to being a successful career you know how do you make that transition and see how other people did it and that that book really changed my life and then when i was in it was really my that was my first institutional awareness of institutional racism and and it changed me profoundly and then when i was 13 i read his book it's good to be alive because he was in that car accident and was paralyzed in a wheelchair the rest of his life and I read this book, and, and it was a really honest book because he said, I was really angry. I got a divorce. I pushed everybody away. I refused to do PT. And finally, uh, they got to him and turned him around, and he talked about how he rebuilt his life and how he was in a chair and he wasn't feeling put upon. But Branch Rickey and his physical therapist are the two people that shook him out of that. And I read that book, and I was so blown away, and I was so inspired by it. And shortly after it, I was diagnosed with acute rheumatic fever. I was in the hospital for a month and then five months at home in in a hospital bed. And I'd been very athletic before that. And I was told you'll never do that again. And, you know, and they pumped me full of steroids and all kinds of stuff. So I came out looking totally different. And it really uh, could have messed up my life, something fierce. But because I read that book about Roy Campanella, that was my guidebook. And I learned to have a sense of humor. I learned to be um, grateful for everything, not no pity parties, and to do whatever they told me to do. <laughs> and that, <laughs> that has better, got me yeah. through. And then I went to Elmhurst College, and my first day there, we were carrying my stuff up to the third floor, and my mom and I schlepping stuff up, and they had names of all the new freshmen on their doors. There's Joni Campanella at the top of the stairs and we went wow i wonder if she's related to roy this is daughter i just got an email from her two days ago we were still really close friends and she lives out in la and it wasn't till a few years ago that i told her how deeply i loved her father and she said why didn't you tell me because i even there was a kid in ohio that near my hometown who was in a bad car accident when she was in grade school and she ended up in a wheelchair and her uncle was a fan of mine at the time and then we got to be friends through this he called me and said can you write to her and send her some xrt tchotchkes and mm-hmm. encourage her and then i found out a few years later he said she's playing wheelchair basketball and this is before the internet. So I called Tom Tuber, my Elmer's friend, and I said, yeah. can you get me a copy of It's Good to Be Alive? Because it was out of print. And he found one and sent it to me. So I went, next time I was in Ohio, I went to Greenville and met this girl and gave her the book. And I said, this book got me through rheumatic fever. And this is even closer to what you're going through, being in a wheelchair. And, you know, so I told Joni this story and she cried. She goes, why didn't you tell me this before? I said, because I didn't want to think you, I loved you just because your name's oh. Campanella, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and we were really great friends and all these years later. But that's why Roy Campanella met so that's, much. That's wonderful. The one thing I did want to mention about uh, Louis Armstrong was um, he's in the exhibit because I saw that, he, yeah. He, he had that period in, in Chicago that was very yes. important, the Hot Five. You very, the hot five. Fi- very so important. It was a museum insider thing. 
So I'm looking around for artifacts, and I reach out to their his foundation in New York, and they have got a trumpet to loan me, and I'm like very excited. Uh, and so I, I'm only in the preliminary stages of figuring out the logistics of everything. And then this new upstart museum in Memphis on African American history opens, and they jumped in line and got this trumpet before. I uh. So he called uh, very. Uh, uh, apologetic that uh, this other museum had started. So we were supposed to have a Louis Armstrong trumpet in this exhibit, oh. but that it, it happens in the museum field. Right. So. Well, I have a good Louis Armstrong Chicago story for yeah. you. I tell my students a story about how he was in Chicago and they opened up a new studio in Richmond, Indiana that was supposed to be really good, oh, yeah. and they wanted to go record there. But what happened, you know, they didn't have the, and I go through Richmond every time I go from here to Ohio because I make that, I've made that trip way too many times. And it's, I'll probably meet my maker on Highway 65 because it's a mess. And uh, anyway, they, they didn't have super highways then and cars were slower. So it would take, right now it'd take about three to four hours to get, because it's uh, further east from uh, Indianapolis. But they had to, drive all the way down there which took a while they recorded in that studio they didn't spend the night they got back in the car and drove to chicago because the ku klux klan was so prevalent there they were afraid if they stayed overnight they wouldn't get out of there alive that to me and i tell that to my students and it gives them chills you know because it to me the storytelling that's why i love langford so much he makes up all of his stories but they're really brilliant uh, no, but uh, i think uh, uh, you know i'll just be i'll just spend some a couple of weeks traveling in wales and there's all these stories about welsh history and it's like yeah. there's so many great stories but there's some that contradict each other and, yeah. and there's some that <laughs> But I kind of like, I just the story itself. Is kinda Stories like, the bring story things to life. There's something of meaning in it yeah. that maybe it's not exactly true. But, uh, but the meaning comes through. Yeah. I'm just yeah. going to go back to your point yeah. about sports people and, uh, and uh, singers and people in entertainment and what happened with civil rights. Uh, in Britain, we didn't know anything about, you know, the situation in America. As a kid, I was like, but I loved Muhammad Ali. I just worshipped him, and he was like such an he was like a hero in Britain completely. And when what happened to him during the Vietnam War, yeah. it shocked people to yeah. the core in England. People could it revealed America to people in England in a way that, that it had just not been thought of before. Sure, that they would be punishing this guy that we thought was he was the greatest, and you know he was gorgeous and funny and brilliant, and oh, yeah. everyone in Britain loved him, and it was just, and it was a, a real turnaround, and it was, and it was a, of that age when you, I was becoming yeah. politically aware, right? and I really think the, the experience of following his career really, really explained it, it really a lot has, about it, America it really, to me. It, it teaches you a lot of life lessons, yeah. and, uh, and, and I think, that's why I think like this uh, Summer of Soul movie is so important. And I even wrote about it on Facebook and uh, and I was like on fire with it because I said, we know so little. Like the Tulsa thing, the 100th mm -hmm. anniversary. Yeah, sure. How many people do you hear say, I didn't even know that happened? Yeah, yeah. Do well, it's because you don't, you don't teach no. it. Yeah. No. And I like majored in black history and, yeah. and literature at Elmhurst because they started offering these classes the last two years. And my grade point, went, I went from academic probation to, to dean's list because it, i was fascinated and i did all my homework i was there every week you know because i didn't know any of this stuff it was all all these writers and all this, this history and it was all new to me and i thought why why weren't we learning and that's why i think it's important to have that stuff because you need to know and and you hear the art, art um, argument now about well if we teach that then the kids will hate america i said no i know all that stuff and i love america mm -hmm. And I want to make America be, live up to its potential. That's what we were talking about last night, you and I, and then we were also talking with Lance. I mean, how, f how fluid is the history-telling story? Hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, this is like, this exhibition to me is like, yeah. open, open my eyes to so things that, and connections that I didn't, you know, That's I kind of in the back of my mind, I might have thought there was something, you know, there's stories there to explore in the future, but this is like putting it completely in focus and you look at it and go like, wow, all this happened here in Illinois. You know, it's. And in writing mm -hmm. it, I mean, the little booklet you guys got and stuff, um, these are kind of 
glum times. I tried to be positive. Yeah. Do you see yeah. that? that and again, yeah. in your experience with kids and stuff, I mean, sure. I try to keep it positive. The kids keep me positive. They do, really? They, they, their energy, they, they inspire me. And that's what I'm trying to do on Facebook, is to, especially when we were all locked down, yeah. to try to use music to help us connect with each other and help keep us sane. And in yeah. fact, I had a lot of people said, I write late at night and post it, and they said they get up and have their coffee in the morning, and that's the first thing they'd read because that would set their tone for the day because there's always a lesson there's always a moral to the story and and there's you know there's hope and without hope you don't have anything and that's why i find with music music inspires me so much you know just going to hear the chicago symphony you come out just feel like whoa you feel smarter or something you know inspired (laughs) and you think i can do this you know music and the arts are so important and that's why i think cutting the arts from school you know we wonder why we have so many problems in inglewood and place like that now because they don't have access to the arts and think about how many kids found themselves in band or orchestra or being in a play and they learn life skills that you can't teach in geometry geometry is important i sucked at it but anyway but uh but all this other stuff and, and, and to build community and to teach kids how to fail and get up and do it again. And, and the same thing with sports, you know, those life disciplines. And we were just talking about this in the car on the way up too. We had a lot to talk about on our way down here t- today, but, but I, tell them i said you know kids need to have a community outside their family and they can either be in a gang or they could be in a choir but if we don't provide them a choir they don't have a choice and they learn the same they get the same support system the same you know i mean anybody that was in school bands and orchestra, you know and church choirs and stuff i'm still my best friends are still the people i was in church choir with 20 years ago you know they're the ones we're there for each other through every hard thing in life that comes along and um and music brings people together like that it builds community my mother taught me that because she was a musician and and she started a community chorus in piqua ohio this little town and we made great music and it was everything from the the president of the bank to a farmer to black and white which was unusual then uh high school kids and senior citizens people that could big was big one 22,000 but there were people that could barely read music and and two opera uh cast members down in dayton who would make that drive 25 miles each way and they were brilliant musicians but they loved singing with this community chorus this to them was like folk music you know it was and 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 she had a luck dinner every year and we build community around food and music and and as a child i would go and act like i was doing my homework while i was really watching the rehearsals and i was fascinated by it and i saw these people connect that ordinarily wouldn't well every every town in wales every little mining village every place that's you know well the industry shut down has a choir and you know remember that group you brought over here that men's the burlingtons from uh, oh my god i love them they were i went to the hideout exactly what you said it's totally egalitarian it's more it's a social community grouping it's not done you don't get in because you can sing well it's a drinking club come on if you can (laughs) you have a few guys who can sing well and the guys who can't stand sing very well they stand next to the guy who can sing well and they sure. try and imitate what they're doing sure and that's what makes the sound I know, and I it's know. a community thing it's yeah. not it's not a, a meritocracy no, it's like yeah. a, you know it's just well, my mom did a church choir and she had an alto who was just awful this old lady who was just oh. and <laughs> and you know and i had a choir director that would have humiliated her in front of the whole choir my mom pulled her aside and said can you do me a big favor? I really need your help. She said, oh, Betty, anything. She said, I have so many altos, they're drowning out the tenors and the basses. We need, so I'm going to ask all the altos, just pull back a little bit, just sing quieter. And, you know, but I want you to sing. I want you to be here. And she goes, oh, I'd be glad to help. And mom said she could never hear her sticking out again. And, <laughs> and the woman still got to show up every week and be part of that community. And that's exactly what your guys in Wales are doing. You know, I yeah. mean, it, it builds community. It changes you. It makes you better, I think. Well, um, yeah. We can. I only have a couple more questions. I know you got another another thing to do out there. I have a thing to do yeah. out there. Oh, <laughs> um, the show must go on. But we touched on this, and um, it goes again in line with community. How come you think Chicago 
has never really done anything like this in a museum or because and we talked before we started went on the air with this i mean and i do see what they do at stacks with outreach and and sending kids sending the stacks uh, kids to london to sing on a, on yeah. a recreation of the stacks right and you know or you, you could have kids go to a museum where they could learn technical stuff and learn how to do a studio mm-hmm. and stuff mm-hmm. why has chicago failed in this well, that's a good question, and I think some of it's money, you know, uh-huh. but they need to have the will to do it because, like, when you go to Nashville or or, or go to Memphis or go to Detroit, they've got the Motown Museum yeah. now, you know. Expanding. Are we talking about yeah, that? yeah, expanding. right? Went the Motown right. Museum is fantastic, right. right? And you know, we got to get busy here because it's tourist money. If yeah, they're right. if they're talking about money, they could make money. You have to spend money to make money. Yeah. And you got like I, I it drives me nuts when every other year they say, Well, are we gonna save Muddy Waters house or not? Nice. You know, save it for crying yeah. out loud that and, house is and do so. yeah. yeah, it's gonna take some money and yeah. stuff, but but that stuff is so important and, and that's the way you get a lot of kids into it too you know they can't all take my class you know i can't you know uh i can only have 20 kids a semester but you know to go into a museum or something like that and and in fact isaac hayes speaking of memphis and stacks isaac hayes spoke in my class once years ago and yeah that was one of the highlights of my life and and that fell into my lap i can't even take credit for it but somebody who brought al cooper to my class once because he was in town on a monday night and she loved it so she she was supposed to escort Isaac around. He was. He came to town. He was tr- trying to make a comeback, and he wanted to meet with all the uh, executives at the uh, urban black stations. They called it urban instead of black. Uh, that was a marketing thing. Uh, but anyway, that was. I used to work at BMX because I came back. That was OPA, and their their main frustration is they could sell hair care products and all that makeup and stuff, but like the airlines, the grocery store chains, they didn't know the black people flew on airplanes and went to the grocery to buy food. You know, so they called it urban. So it was less anyway, but he was going to meet with all the executives from Chicago urban labels, uh, radio stations. And so she said, can I bring him by your class before that? Cause it's, we can move it back a little bit. I said, sure. So I opened it up to the whole campus. Cause I thought this is Isaac Hayes. They need to what hear his story. That's how I introduced him. And he was in hysterics because I said, you know, you heard of the Godfather of Soul. And I went down to the litany of the saints there. And I said, but tonight we had the Black Moses. And he came out laughing. He said, I haven't heard that in a long time. But he didn't have the chains and the bare chest thing. Uh. But before he went out there, he was terrified. He was really nervous. And I said, Isaac, it's really going to be okay. All you got to do is tell your story. And if you run out of stuff, the kids will ask you questions. They've got a lot of questions. I said, because I told them uh, to each have two questions just in case. And also to bring in the Hot Buttered Soul album and have you autograph it because I said you were probably conceived of this album. Yeah, sure. <laughs> you know? yeah. And then I explained about how in lovemaking, you know, side one ends and you have to go, whoops, I'll be right back and jump out of bed, turn it over, put it on side two, boom. And, and, uh, and so I told Isaac, I said, and we talk about Jim Crow South and all the civil rights movement in the 60s because this was all happening. I said, you lived it tell the stories and he's he got out and, and and he was still nervous he was really petrified so i finally had to make him laugh so i said when i was at elmhurst college i was a speech major and we had an oral interp class where we were supposed to read something that somebody wrote you know and, and you know perform it like and for our final you couldn't do a question and answer thing so we had the theater building for one night and we had to each pick something and and perform and i thought nobody's going to come to this i wouldn't go to this you know and it was packed and i was like oh my god i chose to do the monologue by the time i get to phoenix from hot buttered soul (laughs) and it was a brand new album and people are doing yes virginia there is a santa claus and to be or not to be that is you know and uh, why did a nancy drew mystery story once during class and brought the place down but but i said i was at the campus station i was writing on a legal pad you know the whole thing and i had to take tone yeah yeah and so well except the monologue's not the whole song so anyway but i wrote it out and then i i got up there and i thought okay now you don't camp this up too much don't try to sound black just just do it and i did it and you're like you hurt me baby you hurt me and all my black friends in the audience were like literally pushing each other off the chairs they were on the floor and they were like 
hitting each other, laughing so hard. It brought the house down. And but I still stayed true to it. And, you know, but I told him it. Isaac laughed like you know crazy. He just he was so taken by that story and that kind of lightened it up a little bit and then when i did the black moses thing then he was ready to go and then the kids were just focused on him he told a story that i know they'll never forget too that uh he was playing in this band in memphis he played hammond b3 organ and he wasn't even the vocalist in this group uh it was a local group it was before his stax days and one night the uh, band leader before they went on said isaac you sing a song tonight anything you want and we gave him a keyboard and i said we're not paying you so you don't have to play anything you just there if you want it and he went over to it and started playing while he's telling the story and he said there was this white woman that would come to the club a lot and it was all white people on the main floor and and the balcony was blacks you know and he said that she came there frequently and they had this eye contact thing he said i don't know her name never spoke to her because i said i didn't want to die and he said you know but we had a this real emotional attraction to each other and that night he sang he said i sang her this song he's playing around and he goes into my funny valentine and the kids quit breathing. I mean, oh, they just went. Wow, wow. And he sang the whole song, like real beautiful ballad. And he said, we made eye contact through that whole song. He said, I've had a lot of sex in my life. Nothing like I felt then. Wow. He said, I'll never forget that. And so he's talking about music and racism and bringing it all together. Yeah, right, wow. And and that's teaching. That's yeah. teaching. And so at the end of the thing, we were saying goodbye. And he stayed in autograph till he was late to meet all these big radio muckmucks, you know. Yeah. But he said, I'm not leaving till I autograph everything. And bless his heart. And he said, you know, I learned something tonight. He said, you're right. They do need to hear these stories. And I'm going to do this right and i found out that he did a lot of that he yeah. went around to colleges and universities telling those stories and i was so thrilled that he got the inspiration there well, that's what we're doing here these podcasts are, are oral histories i mean you're yeah. so generous with your time and john i mean it's important stuff for people to have and they'll be around forever close to forever yeah, yeah. yeah. well we inspire each other with those stories. i get yeah. inspired right. by other people's stories and then pass them on to my students and they pass them on to and that's that's as old as the Old Testament, you know, yeah. telling stories, yeah. you know. Um, do you have any other questions? I got one question. Okay. Uh, you guys any other anything else you want? Any to questions? Ask? I got one. I asked you questions that you never heard. I'm going to ask her a question. Cool, and you ask her uh -oh. a question. Uh -oh. No, you've had this question a million oh, times. Okay. <laughs> but don't go ahead. Okay. No, go on. You. What's your favorite Beatles song? <laughs> <laughs> Gee, I never even thought about that. Because Dave's going to sing it for you right now. Whatever it is. Is he? Yeah. That's not going to happen. Because <laughs> I'm starting to get a little worried when you said that. Uh, actually, it's been the same one since 1965. I'm kind of stuck on In My Life. Yeah, well, that's a uh, and good that, call. That yeah. is a song, and that is one of those songs that gets you through life you know and my sister was killed in an auto accident when she was 19 way at college and it just broke our hearts she was 13 years younger than me so she was my baby wow. and big beetle fan i don't know how that happened but um anyway my other sister who's two years older than her paul mccartney kissed her at the white house when i brought her there to see the gershwin awards and she'll never forget it and so she owes me big time for that but uh no she loves it. on her wedding day she told her husband said this is the second best day of my life and he goes i know paul mccartney kissing you at the wedding. but the but Joni was a big beetle fan too and we were gathered around the table putting together the all the stuff you have to put together at a time like that and my mom said we need a poem to put on the back of her mass card and i said Joni wouldn't know a book of poetry if it bit her in the rear end you know and uh she was not a poetry fan and i said i think maybe a beetle lyric and she goes oh no that wouldn't be appropriate and so i left the room my mom had like dresser drawers like you know old antique dresser drawers with open up sheet music just drawers and drawers of sheet music and i found my old beetle piano books i'd had when i was growing up there and i brought i opened up to in my life and put it down in front of her and she read it and she went 
perfect. So that was on her funeral card. And and my mom uh, never heard the song until um, a couple years later, my family came out to visit. And there's the whole family, my parents and siblings and everybody. And this priest friend of mine heard that they were coming and said, do you want me to come and do a mass at your house for Joni? Or just do a mass for Joni? And I thought he would just mention her name. And he met at my home. So I said, okay, what do I need? You know, he said, just a candle. Don't make, make it look like a church. And he said, but have a piece of music for the reflection after the communion. So I had my cassette deck all set up. This is in the 80s. Yeah, right. And uh, and so after communion, when you're sitting kind of meditating, I popped that on, and that's the first time my mother heard the song, and oh. she immediately recognized it from the words, and uh, and that song has just got me through a lot of things in life. And here's John Lennon writing this when he's so young. Same like with Paul. I asked Paul once. I said, "You wrote yesterday when you were a kid, and you didn't. It's about loss, and you didn't knew nothing about loss. Now you do. You know, you've lost both your parents, Linda. You know, John, and uh, you know, you really know loss intimately." I said, "When you sing that now as a grown man on stage, does that ever hit you?" Does that song ever come back and just bite your bum, you know? Yeah, and he said, there are some times when I come this close to crying and I p- have to pull back. I have to go, whoa, Nellie, nobody paid to see an old man up here crying, you know? And I said, I think we'd understand. We'd, we'd yeah. be gentle with you. But but he says that he, he has to pull back sometimes because he starts thinking about it. And then he gets choked up. Well, Terry, you got an old man like me crying. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. Oh, thank you, I'm Dave. It was a pleasure. The Roy Campanella story, I'll never forget. I'll, I'll tell Joni. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> oh, can uh, I tell you one more quick one? Sure, yeah. Mary Wilson of the Supremes. I love Mary and Flo. I could care less about Diana Ross, whatever. Mary and Flo were <laughs> mine. Uh, and I, I was a big Flo fan. And we had to Zoom Beetle Fest two years ago. And Mary was going to come because they covered some Beatles songs and knew the Beatles and she was going to be a guest and she couldn't come. So I had a one hour zoom with her. It's actually on the internet. It's, it's worth seeing. She was amazing. I'd never met her just boom. There you are. And like two minutes into it, she was just being so funny. She dressed up. She lived in Las Vegas and she had some of her costumes that she couldn't use because of COVID. And so she dressed up for this. I said, you look great. I said, give us a twirl. And so she got up and did a twirl. And we were off to the races. And towards the end of the interview, I told her about Joni Campanella. I said, you knew Roy Campanella. Because all the sports and music people knew each other because they looked out after, like when traveling from city to city, a lot of times they'd stay in each other's homes, you know. And uh, so I figured she knew the Campanellas. And I said, I walked into Heaven on Seven once with Joni Campanella and one of the Buckets, who was Tay Diggs' mother, actually, uh, small world, yeah, and we walked into Heaven on Seven, and the waiter knew me and pulled me aside. He said, is that Mary Wilson of the Supremes with you? And I said, no, but it's Roy Campanella's daughter, if you're a baseball fan. Uh. <laughs> and so, anyway... Every time jo- I told Joni, and she thought it was hysterical, anytime she'd send me a picture, I'd say, who's that with Mary Wilson of the Supremes? And you know, she- So I told Mary Wilson this story, and she goes, I want to meet her. I said, she was planning on flying out here for this Beatle Fest this year, but she said, well, I'm going to do it next year. Let's do it. And I said, well, I'll get her to come out here, because I want pictures of the two of you together. And... Uh, and then, of course, she died just a couple months after that, suddenly, and it broke my heart. But the weird thing is I was just getting ready to go to bed. It was like 1 in the morning. I looked at my cell phone just to see if I missed anything. Joni Campanella had just emailed me to tell me that Mary Wilson died. And, you know, and I just thought to hear it from her, that was just too <laughs> cosmic. Yeah. And uh, But... Uh, Mary Wilson is just one of the coolest people I ever talked to. And also Sarah Dash of LaBelle just died this yeah, week. Right. And I interviewed her back so, in the 70s. And getting an interview, you know, as a, as a fan talking to these people and getting stories out of them. And she told me all about the Chitlin circuit and all that. It was just amazing. But so... Yeah, I feel very lucky to have this career because I did meet two of the Beatles, and I've met everybody who's ever married to a Beatle. <laughs> and you know, and uh, I can't did say you everybody. Meet Louise Harrison, right? Oh yeah, yeah Lou and I. I yeah. Story in that house once. Oh yeah, um, yeah, um, Lou. Um, we're good buddies. 
Yeah, so, but it's a real pleasure, and everybody should see all your documentaries in oh, Springfield and, and the Staples. When will you ever get to see it? Staples Singers one again? I know. I don't know if there's, uh, I know some of it's on YouTube. We're talking about Dylan, but uh, Dylan was so nice to give us an interview for that. But then uh, I was going to ask you about that with the radio, too, because he will always talk in that, in that documentary. He talks about the magic of radio when he would hear Pop's tremolo guitar yeah. going across the skies to Minnesota and stuff. But I think the versions on YouTube, his people uh, took him out. There's, huh. there's, yeah, and so I don't think it'll ever be oh. like a DVD, really. We did that for P Channel 11, but I think... That was great. I'll never some of it on YouTube. That but. night at Fitzgerald's yeah. was the first night I met Mavis. Yeah, wasn't that something? Oh, Boy. my God. Yeah. And Jesse Dixon. I was yeah, so excited. <laughs> well, and then you did one of those shows, right? One of the... Uh, did you, were you there that night? I was there. Well, you had your book launch. We launched. did the book thing, Mavis. No, we were talking about that earlier yeah. when Mavis yeah. was singing yeah. Dave Hookstra. and yeah. said, I'll take you there. Yeah. Yeah. She's singing <laughs> Dave Hookstra. <laughs> <laughs> Right on. She's she's uh, she's game, maybe yeah, she's great. Well, I'm here with two people I'm big fans oh. of, the, both oh, of well, you. I'll so take that as a, I'll take that as a compliment. And you know thank I you. mean it too. So I want to thank you. you guys. You guys are treasures, and thanks for being so generous with your time, John yeah, Mankford. Good luck with the rest of the you know the time of the exhibits up. I hope yeah. we have loads of big crowds because it's. I wish I could bring my class down here. Yeah. It's a long drive. Yeah. But I found out they can take Amtrak, so I'm yeah. going to tell them to come. Yeah. They'll get extra credit. We think yeah. we yeah. think you got to bring the exhibition to Chicago. That Lance. would be nice. Be nice. You should. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. We need to find a venue. Yeah. That's what, yeah, we're talking about. A lot of artifacts are going to want them back at one point. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. 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 Yeah, thank you so much, Lance, oh, for putting all this guys. together. Yeah. And thank oh, you, Blue Terry. Jay. Blue Jays, yeah. yeah. I got This has been the State of Sound podcast produced by the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library and Museum. To hear other episodes and more information about the exhibit, The State of Sound, A World of Music from Illinois, visit musicfromillinois.com. <laughs>